The United States is a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, they've got two of them. There's only one party in the United States, the party of property, and it has two right wings, the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, the first one there said by Julius Nyerere, the former Tanzanian prime minister, and the latter by Gore Vidal, the American liberal essayist. So take your pick, which one you prefer, but it seems to me that this remains very much true, despite whatever talk about polarization there is today. And yet, in the absence of a mass working class socialist party, or actually really any mass organic party of any sort in the US, American leftists are condemned to flitter away at the edges of the Democratic Party, rightly or wrongly. So today we're discussing a survey carried out by the Center for Working Class Politics, uh, which was also carried out in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. And that survey examines specifically working class Americans' political preferences. And it's useful uh, in that regard in that it contrasts with a lot of other polling in that it restricts its sample to the working class, or at least what it decides is the working class. So today we're going to discuss these results, as well as uh, looking a little bit more deeply at what its limitations might be. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli, and it is Friday, the 19th of November. As usual, Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare are here. Uh, Phil, you, you already promised that you weren't going to be enthusiastic in having any chit chat before we get into it. So um, I'm just checking in whether your mood has improved in the last five minutes. Uh, my mood is fine. Thank you, Alex, for checking in on me. It's uh, only that um, uh, I want to, I guess I want to get stuck into talking about the report more than uh, chit chat. But thank you for checking. I won't take any Phil. personal offense at that, but uh, okay. <laughs> Phil is all business. Just we need to get down to business. There's no no time for for any uh, pleasantries, um, it's the science bit, political science bit. So concentrate time. Yeah, business at the front, business at the back too. Um, and uh, okay, well, let, let's get started then. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about the report. Um, I mean, it came out last week and its uh, results were initially published, at least the executive summary published in Jacobin. And it's been discussed kind of a little bit more widely. Just to tell you a little bit about what it kind of surveys, what it asks, uh, I assume you haven't uh, had a chance to read this, or maybe it's come across your timeline or whatever. Uh, it uh, is a survey of uh, YouGov's 20 million uh, surveyees who opt in to be part of this panel, this sort of online panel. And so it's obviously in that regard, non-representative, but from within that, it creates a, a representative sample of 2000 working class voters in five key swing states. So Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. Now, what does working class mean in this regard? Well, the best way they found to do it, and it's neat, though not totally satisfying, of course, is that it just includes those with a non-four-year college degree. So it's people without a college degree, which, of course, as we know, and we've discussed on this podcast, uh, correlates pretty strongly with class uh, and increasingly so. But, of course, it's, uh, it's imperfect still. Um, they also, uh, and this is relevant, exclude strong Republicans from that. So it does include uh, lean Republicans, which uh, George uh, was uh, very eager to inform me. It's not fat Republicans, but, but only lean, uh, just muscle and sinew. Um, yeah, whereas, whereas strong Republicans are the bodybuilding Republicans. So, I mean, it, it, it follows through. Mm, interesting, interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it obviously includes self-described Democrats as well as independents and those who might lean Republican. Uh, just to give a little bit of context about what the intent was behind this. I mean, you can imagine what the obvious is. It's like, how do we progressives try to win over working class voters, uh, especially in areas where Democrats tend not to win? Right. So in so-called purple or even red areas or states. Uh, so the, the author of the report, Jared Abbott, uh, in a separate piece in Jacobin, commented on the fact that 
uh, he had received an email from the DSA, from the Democratic Socialists of America, the day after the 2020 election, uh, triumphantly exclaiming that socialism can win anywhere. Uh, and then in his article, he sarcastically replies to that, saying, actually, Tuesday's election shows, again, that socialism can sometimes win in heavily democratic areas, uh, which, again, is uh, held up by the election results, where self-described, you know, strong progressives, uh, whether they be more kind of uh, woke or whether they be more focused on material issues. Uh, nevertheless, those tend to only have been successful in, in strongly democratic areas anyway. And so that means that uh, the Democrats might not win a larger share of the vote or whatever. They just may be change some more moderate Congress people, for example, for, for more liberal in, in American terms or more progressive ones. Um, so that's that's kind of where the intention is. That's what the method is. And we're going to go into more detail on this. And we're also going to extrapolate a little bit further towards the end of the episode. But let's just start with uh, first impressions. So uh, why don't you go ahead, Phil? So a few, um, well, actually quite a few episodes ago, I made the point, this was early in the Bunga days, I made the point that um, Jacobin Marxism or the Marxism of Jacobin was a way to leverage um, open the Democratic Party, perhaps at the municipal or the state level, to let in kind of a new generation of activists. And I'd say that this report confirms, I mean, remember Alex was kind of um, horrified at the time and disputed this characterization of Jacobin. Um, and Alex is kind of looking, you won't see this, listeners, Alex is looking kind of skeptical, but it's all recorded Online, you can go back and listen to the early episodes and you'll hear it. Um, and I think this report basically vindicates my characterization of Jacobin from the start. So your so your your takeaway is that you were right all along? Essentially, I mean, yes. Interesting. Sure. And, and, and so novel. We've never heard that hear before. <laughs> George, why don't you go ahead? At, at least, uh, you know, at least he's consistent. Um, yeah, and I mean, so so <clears throat> I guess the, the probably the first thing to say is there's there's always a reason to to take these kind of political science um, approaches with a bit of a pinch of of salt. At least in the British context, this sort of thing you could say is is an attempt to explain the working class to to, to the ruling class rather than rather than vice versa. So an attempt to map out what are the um, what are the fault lines of public opinion, what are the the kind of political attitudes, um, and then how can these be you know be be capitalised on. Um, having said that, I think there's some there's some some points about the methodology that's definitely worth discussing and some kind of wider political points, because I guess that is another thing, which, uh, you know, as you said in your introduction, Alex, this, there's ve- there's relatively little political science, which, which attempts to, to kind of apply a method like, like this and try to, um, in a quite practical way, work out what would be the, at least in these five, um, these five states and given the, you know, the, the, uh, limitations of, of this specific, specific sort of sample, um, but what are the sorts of, of candidates that would or could be successful um, or could appeal to to working class voters? So, yeah, I mean, a, a lot a lot to discuss, and I think it's it's probably worth um, getting into some of the some of the findings before we pr- we provide our, our general critique of bourgeois political science um, towards the end of the the show. Yeah, indeed. I mean, for me, I was struck by actually there were few massive statistical differences in in the in the results. So it's not like there were loads of things that stood out where there are mass divergences between 
you know, racial differences or gender differences or whatever. But the one big takeaway, and this is obviously the headline that Jacobin have gone with, is that no one really likes the woke stuff, which is to say no one really likes woke stuff. Some people sort of like it, um, but really it's kind of fairly limited demographics who are keen on it, really um, young Black and upper middle class, or some selection of those, but you know, broadly speaking, uh, it's the populist rhetoric which plays much better. That, that's kind of economic left wing populism, or what we call left populism. And we can, you know, take that on board and go, yeah, well, that seems kind of obvious. Um, but obviously, and as George and Phil have already alluded to, it doesn't really depart from the general problems of surveying. It's top down, instrumental and kind of static. It only tests what it currently exists. And then the final point, which is uh, kind of the big one, obviously, is that this really only seems driven towards helping the Democrats win and helping the Democrats move leftwards and to do those both at the same time. And uh, it never really seeks to or gives any uh, impression that it wants to break free from those constraints. No, I guess there's um, there's you know not not to preempt too much of the discussion, but there's a there's a you could say a general model of politics, one which is pretty aligned to um, to marketing in general, which is like a lot of a lot of polling, a lot of surveys. I mean, YouGov is essentially a you know polling and marketing company, and they're they're the ones who did the field work um, with that you know that that massive two million um, panel. It's you know it's, it's quite a lot of info potentially there. Um, and yeah, I mean, and there's the, 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 I think what it points to is that there isn't really an alternative model of politics, even the, the so-called populist parties, they generally have a, a, you know, pretty similar, like method of triangulation, work out what people think now, what's the, the most that you can, can shift them, you go for the middle, you optimize your, uh, your voters in, in whatever context. So yeah, I mean, this is the this is by far. I mean, as I said, I don't think there is another model of politics really today. This kind of Blairite model of triangulation, which requires this sort of input, um, is 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 completely dominant. So it's it's worth discussing on on those terms. I think definitely. Just a one quick thing on wider content before we delve more deeply into the actual results. Um, I, I noted it's I think at least a certain defensiveness as to in the kind of write up in the executive summary as to why it was focused on the working class and why you need to appeal to the working class. Like I had to justify that to, to its audience, which I think is telling uh, in its own right. It's you know, reminding readers, you know, it constitutes the majority of the American population, that these were the people who would be most uh, appeal, who would be most interested in kind of economically populist or redistributive policies and so on. Um, but it's interesting that a lot of the reaction to it, um, at least, you know, going by Twitter, which uh, tells its own story, but it, I, I, is, uh, is that it was too hard on wokeness. And it's kind of interesting. One from Lux Magazine, and I had to look that up. I wasn't familiar with what Lux Magazine. It uh, describes itself as inspired by, uh, named after Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, they subtweeted Jacobin saying, are you looking for a socialist magazine that doesn't disparage wokeness? We're here for y'all in your time of need. Uh, praying hands emoji um so you know there's some out there who uh, even who claim the banner of socialism who think that jacobin is too too hard on wokeness uh and that you could argue that it's uh, the opposite is the case but we'll get on to that we'll get on to that um, no, I, I, on. I i just wanted to jump to just jump in here yeah i mean that it's why progressives need the working class i mean and then the the, the, the points there are two points put forward. One, they're the largest share of the electorate, so you need them to win. Secondly, they're the ones who can benefit most from progressive poli uh, policies. Well, I mean, this is obviously a massive departure from the classic, like, why, why is the working class politically important in the Marxist tradition? It's because they're the ones who can rule society. Like, 
and replace capitalism. So there is a bit of a shift from this idea that there is a new sort of society, that there is a um, that this is the the group of people who produce um, and can control society in a in a more rational way than than the capitalist. To like, yeah, they will benefit the most. So you know, better better help them out. Um, but this obviously is a point that we've seen <laughs> quite a lot in politics in the last uh, few years. So yeah, yeah I, I think mean, it's well, well highlighted, Alex. Well, the defence, I think, yeah, the defensiveness is real um, in what you say, Alex. Um, and it's formulated in that, I suppose, it's pitched to so-called progressives and why the working class need progressives. And I suppose it's pitched in those terms because the way progressives and the kind of constituency to which the report is addressed, they would see themselves as... Um, dealing with discrimination, I suppose, or, you know, kind of concerned with injustice and poverty. Um, and that class only matters insofar as it is part of injustice, part of poverty, part of inequality, yeah. among all the other kind of intersectional forms of oppression. And that is why, you know, it's framed in this defensive way as it's trying to cut through that, um, while still giving a, you know, still giving kind of a role to progressives. We can help, we can help um, kind of uplift these benighted, um, poor people through the through reconstruction but and they give us their votes and we kind of offer kind of economic and social reconstruction that improves their circumstances a win-win for everyone just yeah, to, indeed just a just one, one 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 quick final point on this um it's not why the working class need progressives it's why progressives need the working class that's how it's it's framed um and i do remember somebody uh saying that you know, the word progressive is not not one that should be used in, in politics because when people hear it, they think about about cancer, which is not a good um, a good association. So I'm not sure about <clears throat> describing oneself in, in those terms, whether that's helpful. I don't think I, I personally probably would. <laughs> OK, uh, we'll come back to all these points because we there are things to learn from the results of the survey, uh, whatever its limitations may be. So let's actually get into what we found of the results and leave aside these critiques till later on. Um, like let's let's firstly deal with uh, well with some of the content. I guess uh, what are the headline takeaways uh, for you from this, and you know did you find them interesting? Uh, yeah, no, that I mean that there there are, and I think this it, it's as you said in in Twitter context, it's been discussed as like the question of like harshness on wokeness is is the like the the dominant sort of frame, and I mean that's that is one of the i think one of the takeaways that the the voters um that that they spoke to in these these five states um don't particular there isn't there doesn't seem to be any added value to quote unquote woke language i mean the populist and class messages though those are the ones that that appeal and that do better in these so the, the uh, we I'll probably talk a bit more about the method in methodology in a bit but in those kind of uh, like pairwise comparisons um that's that's what 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 the clear message um is that identity rhetoric or anything which is is linked directly or indirectly to to wokeness it's a liability um it will do less well than just simply putting things in uh, populist or, or class terms i, I mean it's interesting just just to... just to say something quickly about what wokeness is is the is defined as here it's more defined as a style rather than the content right so it's kind of i think we all know what we're talking about here but it's that kind of hectoring style that using kind of complex academic language to describe things rather than necessarily the content so it doesn't necessarily need to apply to uh kind of identity politics or you know to race and gender and, and stuff like that it's more of a style yeah and the assumption i mean the assumption of the whole report i suppose is 
that it's uh, the problem is one of rhetoric. Um, kind of activist rhetoric from progressives is what um, is what is the problem. I mean, I struggled really to take away anything that I don't think is, I mean, you know, maybe there are kind of um, listeners who are more kind of familiar with the detail of these kinds of surveys and reports than I am in other contexts. Um, but I struggled to take away anything that was especially surprising. And I don't know if um, if you, George and Alex, um, came across anything. But I mean, it all, you know, a lot of it seems to me is kind of deeply predictable and banal and um, mainly perhaps backing up kind of what would be common sense intuitions with um, having to bring it with the authority of kind of polling and survey to to the activist progressives who are presumably the um, constituency and the uh, audience for the report you know so in terms of the suburban urban breakdown rural versus um, urban kind of respondents differences in race and gender um, different messages given to different groups all of this it seems to me to be uh, there doesn't seem to me to be a particularly standout interesting um, point to take away from the key from the key takeaways Okay, cool. That, that's 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 the end of the episode. Yeah, thanks. yeah. Thanks for doing that, Phil. Now, now we can just stop here. Okay, people, you don't need to listen. No, I, um, I have. I I think if you if you dig into it with a bit more, a bit of a keener eye, perhaps. No, look. Um, sorry. Can, can I can I can okay. I clarify yeah, right, the misconception right. that is being kind of heaped upon me? It's not to say that there is not material of interest in the depth of the report. In terms of the key takeaway points, I struggled to extract anything that I thought was especially surprising. Yeah, I think the that's detailed fair. breakdown, you know, the detailed breakdown, there is stuff which is interesting, particularly in, you know, kind of um, the crunchy kind of um, contextually specific kind of data. But key takeaways, you know, there was nothing I thought which stood out as shocking from what you'd expect um, from a report like this. So you're just a, to, I mean, you're just, a politics, you're a politics academic and professional podcaster. So there's nothing like new under the sun to, to someone like you who's... Um, you know, who's seen it all before. One of his, one of um, his pointy-headed political scientists <laughs> who... Yeah, precisely. I mean, you're a, you're a sophologist of, of, of um, renown, right? You, you can't... You, you spend your weekends with um, stator and regression analyses fa- fairly frequently, all of the course. Time. But, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, not to mischaracterize what you're saying, in some ways, the takeaways, yeah, these are things which, you know, have been put in, a, a, you know, more or less kind of straightforward um way in the last few years i think particularly there were some analyses of the 2016 uh campaign where you could have the like some honest analyses of um of what, of what the clinton campaign was was like and you could argue, even argue some guests on this podcast who who essentially said all of these all of these things as at that point either as critiques or as warnings to the to the Democrats and you know that clearly twenty twenty was the um, the the farce after the the farce of twenty sixteen so um, yeah I mean I guess there is you know something in that perhaps so just to give uh, listeners a little bit of a sense of what has been asked of the surveyees here um, so it asks. Um, the, you know, it asks people what, what kind of candidate they would prefer, you know, uh, based on race or ethnicity, on gender, also on what their day one priority would be, whether it be healthcare, economy, racial justice, immigration, or jobs. Uh, within those issues, uh, or within some of them, it asks them at, at a kind of more granular level what their key issues are on the economy, for example. So 
a jobs guarantee or to empower small businesses or to cut government spending. And there you can already see some of the political differences in those issues. Uh, but uh, what it also tests, and a lot of the report kind of hangs on this aspect, is the messaging. Uh, and so it tests different candidate sound bites. And this is quite novel, I thought. I thought it was pretty interesting as a just as a kind of form of research and trying to figure out what most appeals in terms of messaging. Um, you know, you can say that there's too much focus on messaging today. And I think there's there's a lot to that because it's a lot about presentation and marketing. Nevertheless, this is where some of the strongest divergences come out. And so let me just say what the different sound bites are. So one, it casts progressive populist, which is basically uh, the Bernie Sanders thing. And so just let me read out some of the, what the candidate soundbite would be like. So it's, this country belongs to all of us, not just the super rich. But for years, politicians in Washington have turned their backs on people who work for a living. We need tough leaders who won't give in to the millionaires and the lobbyists, but we'll fight for good jobs, good wages, and guaranteed health care for every single American. Okay, so you can already kind of have a picture in your head. You, Another, you probably second, should have you probably should have read that in the in the Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do it. World to the millionaires, um, mm, That was more Sopranos than it was. Than yeah, it was. Yeah, that was, Paul, that was Polly Walnuts, this. not uh, <laughs> not Bernie Sanders. Okay, but anyway, I'll work uh, on it. Sorry. So, so the next ones are uh, woke progressive, so something like AOC, right? Uh, woke moderate, which then would be kind of, I guess, Hillary sort of style thing. Mainstream moderate, which would then be kind of Biden. So no real woke rhetoric. And it's something which I would describe as purely post-political, right? So let me just give you an example of what this is. America is better than this. We have to stop demonizing each other based on which party we support, how much money we make, or the color of our skin. It's time to heal, right? So this is all about common sense, listening to experts, Basically, the con- consensus post politics of the '90s and 2000s, uh, and, and yeah, you can imagine Obama saying that. Exactly, that might yeah. even be an Obama speech that, that they've smuggled in there. Don't yeah, exactly. I think they have taken this from actual politicians, right? So they've compiled this from from actual rhetoric been, that's been used. Um, and then the final one is Republican rhetoric. And just to give you an idea, it's, what makes America great is the freedom of American people. Today, our freedom is under threat from radical socialists, arrogant liberals, and dangerous foreign influences, and so on. Um, and so it tests those. It also tests, you know, candidates' political affiliation, what plays better, Democrat, Republican, or independent running as a Democrat, and what the politician's occupation prior to being a political, uh, to be a politician is. So teacher, construction worker, small business owner, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, lawyer, or veteran. Anyway, so that's just to give you an idea of what people were asked about. And I think the messaging aspect is possibly the most important. And here's just one takeaway, which I wanted to highlight. Again, fairly obvious. It's what I would expect. It's that the progressive populist form of messaging tends to be the kind of most determining aspect. So even if you're talking more about uh, ending systemic racism, if you do that alongside progressive populist messaging, that is much more successful than if you do that with woke messaging, which is kind of interesting. And especially amongst the kind of lower end of the working class, when you look a little bit more into the detail, that aspect of messaging has an outsized role, actually. So it kind of matters more sometimes than the specific policies being proposed. That notwithstanding, um, in terms of the actual issues, material focus does best. So jobs and economy in first place, um, more than healthcare and more than uh, kind of racial issues, uh, which again, is probably what we'd expect, right? Universalist kind of uh, universalist kind of policies and left populist rhetoric uh, kind of tends to be the most successful. And this is kind of across all groups. Yeah, I think there's, there's also some, some kind of basic takeaways, which um, go against the, the general picture, at least in some parts of, of the left of the working class, like working class, or at least the people they spoke to in this survey aren't sexist. So there's no like massive preference for male over female candidates. 
not racist. There's no pref. In fact, there's a slight preference for for black candidates over um, Latino, Asian, white candidates. So there's no massive preference for white candidates over all other candidates. Not xenophobic. In fact, immigration is the only day one priority that has that has actually any statistical like significance in terms of affecting people's preferences and it affects them negatively so working class aren't sexist aren't racist aren't xenophobic but i mean it might be it might we be all, i, I don't know if, i don't know if immigration already sorry just to just i'm not sure if immigration here refers necessarily to conservative stance on immigration it's just immigration as an issue so it could be a liberal but in any case, there basically immigration isn't a major issue for the working class, whether it's restricting oh. immigration or having more limer- immigration reform, as it's called in the US. Yeah, exactly. And this is because immigration is, as we've discussed many, many times, is a prism through which a, lo- a loss of sovereignty, a loss of political control is expressed. So if you isolate it and you say, well, is it jobs or immigration? Jobs are the thing is is my, is is the prime mover immigration is is secondary so yeah i think it does you know it's just i mean i don't want to kind of belabor this point but it's worth repeating like all these people who've who've spent the last however long building up working class as fascist racist xenophobic um sexist like these things at least in this in this study are obviously not borne out because as we all knew they were just ideologically motivated so yeah it's, it's the thing it's just worth you know making that point as well Okay, so just looking a little bit at some of these other breakdowns, so you know, age and generation, geography, race and gender. Before we get into some of the finer grained segmentation of working of the working class, which I think has some interesting things in there about you know asking what your relative autonomy at work is, your skill level, whether you're a supervisor or not, uh, and and then finally we'll also talk about non-voters because that's also very interesting. But uh, on these kind of demographic breakdowns, what actually struck me was how little divergence there was. So whether you are Latino or white, your your preferences don't change that much. Generally, you prefer uh, you prefer kind of the populist you know messaging, the left populist messaging, um, and also just in terms of who the candidate is, people don't care very much who the candidate is, which you know, it's something that we probably would have made that point before reading that survey, but it's obviously the, something that kind of the political cephologists and mar- political marketeers are obsessed with, right? Of finding the perfect candidate. Oh, look, Obama, this is a black guy, or, you know, we need a woman or whatever. Generally speaking, there is not a lot of statistical importance that we can accord to to this kind of thing, right? According to this survey. So, you know, people people have a light, slight preference for a women politician versus a man politician, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the one thing which does matter, actually, in terms of candidate background, was that they vastly prefer someone who's a teacher, a construction worker, maybe a small business owner or a veteran, well over a lawyer and especially a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So they're just kind of a traditional understanding of class uh, is probably a bit more decisive. Again, probably not that surprising, right? Yeah, I mean, have yeah. you ever met a lawyer? <laughs> or uh, I don't think I've met a CEO of a Fortune 500 <laughs> company, and I should apologize to um, yeah, any of my mis- lawyer friends. And you're misrepresenting, obviously, these people who you've never met. How can you talk about them, George, like that? No, I mean, I agree. I think you know, a lot of it is um, those kinds of findings are unsurprising. You know, I mean, it's, it's also good to have it, I suppose, confirmed um, by, you know, by the data. What is a little bit more significant is that the kind of urban-rural split. And now rural in the U.S. doesn't mean you're living on a farm, you know, or you're a farmer, you're living in a kind of minuscule hamlet. Actually, it just means you're living outside of a big metropolitan center. So you can still be in a, a, you know, a town or a city of, I don't know exactly what the limit is, but, you know, 10,000 people, and that's still counted as as rural. So, uh, and of course, these are 
much discussed in the American context as particularly suffering from deindustrialization and so on. These are often kind of small industrial, small industrial centers. And there, there's kind of a difference. There, there's a split. There, it's kind of generally more conservative, um, and uh, and but also kind of favorable to the left populist kind of messaging. Um, so actually, in the cities, it's actually kind of more centrist politics that plays well. So kind of the Biden issues, as well as a focus on race. Whereas in the countryside, you know, or in smaller towns, it's populism and material issues which which play. And that's something which we've discussed a lot about kind of growing geographical inequalities and, and these changes which um, weren't so significant in the past, or even sometimes were the reverse of what they are today. And this bears that out. Again, nothing particularly new, but it's interesting confirmation. Um, let's just move on to some of these uh, kind of finer so, breakdowns. Well, only just to say it's in key. I mean, it's strikingly in keeping with, you know, the traditions um, of American politics, uh, the appeal of populism in rural areas, you know, in itself, despite the fact of how the meaning of rural has changed over time. And it's no longer kind of, you know, the, um, you know, Dust Bowl style kind of politics of the 30s or the um, genuinely agricultural kind of farm labor questions of the early 20th century. And yet it's still the case that outside of major urban centers, populism still plays um, more strongly in kind of smaller, smaller um, centers of population. I thought it was yeah. interesting and not really addressed in the report, that continuity. Bill, you also yeah, wanted I mean, to the... talk about, sorry, George, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, no, I'm just well, just just to throw in that the the Michael Lind um, book is 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 quite is quite good on this, and and the and the agree as well. Like the the way that the like I think that's part of the the populist appeal is like the people in urban centres. They're obviously obviously to a certain extent it's a proxy for class, but it's also a cultural um, a cultural dominance, a cultural hegemony, and a and a, a very general disparaging of flyover states and like anywhere like the, the hicks if, if you're not living like in the, the center of new york city you have to call it new york city not 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 new york or, or like a similar metropole then you're a you know you're a, a rube um missing missing teeth and missing kind of um political nails as well so yeah i think that's that's kind of you know that's part of it as well Okay, uh, Phil, you wanted you were wanted to talk about uh, independence and uh, whether people running as Democrats are more you know successful. Go on. Well, only that it was um, something that was striking. I thought so. They found little evidence for the success of independence as opposed to Democrats because it's been one of the questions that has vexed the left is and particularly the DSA, which is so kind of closely associated with Jacobin, is whether or not to. Um, you know, the success or possibility of third party candidates uh, in American politics, at least at the state or municipal level, even if not at the national level, given the kind of um, the gerrymandered bipartisan gerrymandering conducted by the Democrats and Republicans. And I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly, they find that, you know, um, independents don't fare, independents don't fare particularly more strongly than the Democrats. So, you know, I mean, perhaps it's predictable to that extent they find what they were looking for. But what I, I mean, the effect was, you know, it was uh, it was less than I thought it might be. Um, that said, you know, I mean, also the way in which the kind of the sound bites and the way in which the kind of um, the messaging is framed also doesn't necessarily cut through in the way that um, an independent 
politics might. So given the way in which some of these issues are framed, you know, it's all along a spectrum of certain kinds of themes, whereas perhaps, I mean, what occurred to me was, you know, if an independent political group, say, you know, framed its politics in terms of, I don't know, like abolishing the Senate or abolishing the Supreme Court kind of issues that were um, outside of the spectrum of kind of what's understood to be conventional party politics, that it might cut through much more effectively. But obviously, if it's kind of along the spectrum of what's understood to be um, the conventional kind of framing, then unsurprisingly, the independent kind of stances aren't going to particularly cut through from regular kind of democratic politics, even if it's um, populist or left-leaning democratic politics. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, I mean, it's basically saying that, you know, if Bernie Sanders had run as an independent, he wouldn't have been more successful. You know, people weren't turned off by the fact that he was uh, running as a Democrat. And yes, that's true, but it's testing against something that's basically an empty signifier. You know, this independent, What? who is that independent? What does their independence mean? All it's testing is the label independent, not you're running as a member of the Socialist Party or you're running on the platform, you know, for example, abolish the Supreme Court or something, which is a much more, you know, huge and much more radical uh, proposal. Um, yeah, it, we don't know what that content would be. And of course, this is kind of foreshadowing what we're going to talk about in a bit, but the limitations of these kind of surveys is that it only tests kind of the existing possibilities. It's not testing out kind of things that don't exist yet, right? Um, you know, political forms that, have don't, that haven't taken shape yet or whatever. Um, just one thing on non-voters, and this I thought was interesting, and one of the, probably one of the bigger takeaways, and it kind of gets smuggled, I think, in the report, but basically the headline, and it's probably, you know, it's probably what the, the d- divisors of the survey wanted, but I think I don't have a reason to question it, the integrity of the results, but, you know, it's that basically... Uh, progressive populist messaging and focus on the economy wins and the woke stuff should be pushed to the side, right? Okay, good. That will win working class voters who already vote and who identify as Democrat or as independent, right? What it doesn't do is win over non-voters. And there's a huge swathe of them. And, you know, especially in the United States, despite recent uptick in in turnout at the last election, uh, you know, non-voters is still a large swathe of mainly the working class who don't vote, and especially the younger end of that, because of course, older people tend to vote more um, because they've maintained those habits of higher turnout and higher political engagement from the past. Um, so how do we read this aspect that, you know, being more left, basically to put it like in the simplest terms, being more left-wing will help Democrats, uh, being especially more, more left populist will help Democrats win uh, more of the working class amongst those who already vote, but it will not win people who don't vote already yeah no i think um it's also worth because there's some interesting other stuff about um uh comparing non-voters to voters non non-voters average birth year 1980 compared to 1968 for, for voters so they obviously um tend to be tend to be younger as well so yeah i mean it's it's a you know they play play a pretty consistent role in in kind of american political um political narratives because it's 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 partly a symptom of the the lack of 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 the parties as it is in all all you know modern democracies to energize people sufficiently to exercise their their fought for democratic right etc um but i mean i think i mean it this isn't specifically designed as an as an like non-voter study so there's not a you know it's not an exit poll and looking at people who haven't voted and seeing why not and and trying to look at their their reasons. So it's I mean there are there are some limitations there. But Phil, I think you wanted to jump in. Well, just with one more thing, which I thought was 
despite, like I you know, said earlier, the relative banality of the kind of headline findings, one of the interesting things that did strike me towards the end of the report was um, the difference between, so independence at work, how closely supervised or how much autonomy you have at work, and the fact that the, you know, according to the results anyway, the, um, that the, uh, the more supervision that you, the less independence that you have, the more favored, generally more favorable you are towards um, kind of mainstream democratic candidates, but also towards CEO candidates. And I thought that was interesting. And I was trying mm. to kind of, um, you know, trying to imagine um, and work out how that might work kind of concretely, what it is about being more controlled at work that might make you more susceptible. I mean, I suppose it just means you're more being more controlled by the boss makes you more open to the boss's messaging i suppose would be you know the mechanics of that but i thought it was i thought it was a genuinely kind of fascinating finding yeah that's right i thought it was interesting too i i, I didn't know what to make of that that was probably the only standout one from the finer grained analysis of you know along based like skilled or non-skilled how creative or not creative at work you know creative versus routine labor and so on um, yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that, but I also, I think the non-supervisory ones also favor more woke message. I don't know. It, 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 there's nothing kind of so clear cut that it, that it stood out, which I guess is its own story maybe. Um, and maybe shows, you know, also that things aren't so politicized that there's such clear stances and clear responses to this, you know, there aren't obvious polarizations that, that happen, you know, or that are manifest in the survey. So on that note, uh, what do we, what, let's let's talk about the negative points. What are the limitations, at least just in terms of the kind of method of this? One thing to throw in there, you know, who are the people who opt in to be part of these two million people who are of this uh, YouGov, uh, YouGov survey, YouGov uh, online panel? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not um, you have to be a specific sort of person who's who's on these um, who's on these panels. I think you want to be asked the... about your opinion. They're probably podcasters, I, I would say uh i don't know if you Ed, well we should we should uh poll the, the three of us if anyone any of us are on yougov um panels in in nope. the uk or, or brazil no I, i'm no. i'm i'm not um, in fact it's you can uh well obviously you're incentivized so you get you get um you get paid either you know the number of points which then points mean prizes which then get converted um so yeah i mean there is obviously that but i think all survey all surveys need need to um either you have um you know a bespoke uh sample which is extremely expensive or you go for a panel and these are people who get asked their opinion a lot so they're very used to filling in um these sorts of surveys obviously the methods here are a little bit different to the usual attitudinal um surveys but yeah i mean it's a massive number isn't it two two million so it, it does give you the possibility to get that to get the the um i think, I think it would be you know quite a few thousand um, was it was it two was it two thousand or f- or five hundred uh, from each of the? Each no, it's yeah, four hundred in each state. So it's uh, yeah. you know four times four hundred times five, two thousand. Good yeah, quick maths. Two thousand in total. Quick maths. Um, yeah. So I mean, like that's obviously, I guess the the major limitation though that I wanted to, to talk about and stop kind of like boring people with uh, survey methodology is it's not. It makes me think of the uh, the book "We're Still Here" by Jennifer Silver, which we did a, an episode on previously, which is essentially um, just quite similar to this, but to, but is a qualitative approach. So, asks uh, has interviews with a um, number of working class um, people about about politics, and I think that you know they can be quite usefully read together. Because 
but the the silver book obviously predates this um this research by a number of years and gives a number of pretty similar sort of um uh you know similar sort of results um one of the headlines being that the and they say this is kind of trump versus clinton that the at least the um the the people that jennifer silver spoke to would would prefer um president dickhead to president sellout so it's like the contradictions potentially you could put it this way of a, of a kind of populist approach as against the the um untrusted rhetoric of a of a pseudo woke or proto woke candidate in in clinton so yeah i think that's you know obviously you, you you're never going to get the the reasons why things are happening in a in a purely quantitative ice kind of survey approach but it would it would have been interesting if they'd done some some interviews or focus groups or or discussed uh, jennifer silver's book but listeners can obviously go back to that episode for more on that i suppose i mean my you know i'm slight i I'm somewhat mystified, I suppose, by I don't have anything to add in terms of the meth, you know, the methodological points that George has made. But I do I do keep wonder wondering how much kind of mileage there is in continuing organizing politics around these kinds of reports um, and polling. I still I can't get away from seeing polling as a kind of political artifact of a very specific era. Um, which it seems to me is, you know, kind of the, given the fact that we live in more politically contested times, that the polling of just uh, effectively taking the temperature in order to um, design your policies and triangulate um, accordingly, you know, that era is gone, it seems to me. And so I'm, I strike, you know, the. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I think I, I see what you're saying, but what's the alternative? What's the alternative to give credibility, to give authority to a political position? Because, you know, that void, that gap still hasn't been filled. So I think these surveys are going to continue to inform political positions as long as that that gap of of authority um, in the political system remains. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, sort of, I sort of right. agree with you, but it's like, what's the alternative model? Like, this is fairly well um, dug in, this kind of, you know, social marketing uh, kind of approach, this yeah. triangulation. Yeah. So, you know, come up with a better one. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, and I mean, and it's all, a lot of this research and having worked kind of not specifically in this area, but kind of related stuff, it's often, you know, you already have an answer about what you want to do, and you just need the empirical data to show your boss or your client or whoever else it is that, you know, that your, your decision's well founded and it's backed up by stats. And I think, you know, if we're going to be critical of what Jacobin are intending here, I think. You know, th there's a there's that defensiveness, which I mentioned at the beginning about being defensive about why do you need to care about what the working class specifically says? Why is the working class so important? But also that they want to not be woke, maybe not be explicitly anti-woke, but be, you know, focus on kind of healthcare and jobs, right? And focus on that economic stuff and do kind of left populist messaging um, without having to take on the wokes directly. And they want to keep the wokes on board, but keep them in a secondary position. And as a consequence, yeah. that this and this this survey backs that up. It basically goes, yeah, this woke stuff really fails. Whether it's moderate woke or progressive woke, it fails. And so, do you know, be more Bernie, be more like populist, and yeah. uh, you will succeed. And you know, I'm fine with that as an approach. Like <laughs> between those two options, obviously, uh, that's preferable. But it it also does kind of belie a lack of you know a lack of uh, conviction in well it's it's yeah it's, it's not wanting to have 
it's not wanting to win the argument politically. It's wanting to say like, oh, you know, th- this strategy won't work because we have the data, we have the evidence, and it, it won't be successful. It's the Trump saying, card of electoral success, right? This is electorally successful. Being woke yeah. isn't, and therefore we shouldn't be woke, which is not- Well, don't say the Trump card because that Trump card, <laughs> the Trump card worked in 2016. Yeah, okay, okay. 2020, so. Des- I mean, I think the kind of the, the desperate, you know, the, the tone of desperation is you can almost kind of um, taste it in the executive summaries and so on and the introduction at the beginning. It's a plea to a particular kind of audience. Look, please, you know, please ditch it. Please ditch the language. Talk like a normal person. Stop talking all your academic kind of cultural studies, Judith Butler kind of theory. Um, Think about what you say when you go on the stump, when you kind of start leafleting or flyering or trying to kind of um, convince people to vote for a particular candidate. Um, I think, I mean, that's, you know, that kind of it's uh, that comes across very clearly. And inevitably, I think it'll be understood as talking down, you know, common sense solidarity. It's the populism is the, you know, the the populism is an injunction to um, to talk down to the workers. I mean, that's I see. That's the way I read the the claim, Um, the title, the claim, the kind of the uh, reading between the lines of the intention and maybe I'm being unkind and imputing impugning you know the intent the intention of the people who framed it and all that but that I find it difficult to read it any other way common sense solidarity but, is talked down to the working class yeah I mean but I think in terms of a, of a method for achieving the aims that this um research report is is trying to like it, it isn't that quite kind of potentially a effective if you're thinking of the sort of person who might be the target audience of this like it's packaged in the way it's got takeaways it's got executive summary you know it, it speaks the yeah, language no, sure. so um yeah i mean i, I might sort of agree but, um, with you on, said, the, on the political I'm, point but i think no, you know don't I, it's limited i think it's also limited in the sense that populism i don't i mean i maybe i disagreeing a bit with alex here but i don't think populism is going to um, achieve the effects that they, you know, that they, I think that they would like to in terms of um, stronger social democratic politics and institutions in the US. No, I mean, quite possibly not, though I think it, this does suggest that it would fare better. I mean, I think the Bernie campaign, you know, did show that it, Bernie was very popular amongst working class voters, if you look at also the number of donations by people giving five, ten dollars, things like that, um, you know, from lower incomes. So, it does, it does play, it does play well, but of course you have to go back and, you know, step away from that for a second and look at the limitations of that, not just electoralism, because it's not, I don't want to be just critical of standing for election at any point in time, you know, um, but actually of the limitations of just working through the American political system as it is that, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to achieve? Uh, yeah, you might get more, more kind of left-leaning Democrats elected and you might shift kind of policies a little bit more leftward. I think that might be the, you know, the, the horizon of what success might be. And, you know, if you can step step even further back, you know, how much was kind of social democracy built uh, through just being social democratic? Not very much, right? I mean, that there were always larger aims, whether revolutionary or much, ser- much more seriously reformist than just achieving some social democratic policies or new structures. And even in a deeper sense, not just in terms of, hey, we want revolution, you know, aim for the moon and you get social democracy, but also that, to mix my metaphors, uh, but also that there was always a kind of a telos to what 
to, of a move towards socialism, right? So social democracy was, uh, at least amongst its defenders, a waypoint on the way to, to socialism. And here that's lost. You know, that, that isn't visible at all. What, what at best is, yeah. uh, this is a waypoint on the way to 1970 Sweden, which is just to say maybe a deeper social democracy more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought you were going to say, Here, here's time for some game theory. You go into a negotiation with the ruling class and you're like, we want we want communism. Okay, you can have some social social democracy as a treat. And if you go in there and like, we want social democracy, it's like you can have just some left neoliberalism as a treat. And it's like, and, okay. Because I, I, I thought that would have been a, a very um, a very compelling Hoculean argument. The, the, the prisoners so. of the Democrats' dilemma. Yeah, that's, that's what <laughs> that is. Me. Um, okay, so let's let's uh, step a little bit further away then, and just um, make some conclusions about this. So, what I would say about the report is, and I think, in fact, I mean, it's not specific to this report, but it is consistent with the findings of these kinds of reports, even ones that are kind of less specifically tailored to eliciting working class responses. But it consistently, I think, it kind of, perhaps even despite itself it actually demonstrates the purpose of woke of what woke politics does and it demonstrates it very well you know it kind of it uh, illustrates that its function is precisely to be divisive and it's precisely to um disaggregate and to disperse the construction of um of the kind of electoral majorities that are very visible you know they can be very visibly inferred through these kinds of data gathering mm. analyses and the assumption always is, oh, if you just dispense with the woke rhetoric, you know, these um, these uh, this kind of these electoral majorities will be formed. But it's precisely, you know, the when you show kind of that woke messaging doesn't play to these electoral majorities, you're demonstrating what the if political effect and political role played by woke politics is. It is dis intended to prevent the formation of these larger kind of um, democratic majorities around substantive issues to do with, you know, economic improvement or um, rebalancing rural urban divides and what have you. So they're always kind of, you know, effective demonstrations in reverse, I suppose, or um, of what polit woke politics its effect does. And to that extent, I think it's probably not effective because what it's doing is it's, I mean, I, you know, if I'm not overreading here, but it's effectively asking woke progressives to ditch woke messaging. Um, without really understanding the fact that the purpose of woke is precisely to achieve the effects that are that you can see in this report, which is so the divisiveness of woke. You're saying that the ruling class is trying to s split the the working class. It's better to rule it. Yeah, no, I mean, progressive I mean, serve progressive serve that purpose very well. So I mean, yeah. the, uh, the point the point I would make sort of in in closing, which is like. I think one of the limitations of this is that I, I kind of, you know, searched the, um, and I know this isn't really what it was aimed at, but I kind of, I searched it for like references to, to COVID or coronavirus and, and there aren't any. And it's like, I, I don't, you have to talk about that now. Like the, these um, like issues, it's still, it's still the, the thing that I'm sort of, I would be most interested in um in in voting like what is it what, what join what the Ugolf panel think? mate have your say yeah no that's that's true I, I've, i you know you can't you can't um complain it's better to 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 light a candle than curse the darkness it's better to join a Ugolf panel than to, to say that 
you know my my opinion in politics is not represented so yeah I mean I was gonna was gonna get more politically involved in however way but I'll just join the YouGov panel I think is, is the way to do it but no I mean like that's is it an evasion am I just reading too much into it am I, is my brain just so covid I, distorted I, I now think so you can ask that, dude, that I know. want well like shouldn't it be something that features in a report about political preferences that like this massive thing that is you know has 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 really changed the whole of society that want to hear something about that I don't know maybe maybe you, you might be right I'm just I'm just too um too corona corona inverse corona, corona pill whatever the fuck yeah my brain is yeah. melted yeah um yeah no I I just want to I guess yeah reiterate Phil's point I guess about the divisiveness of wokeness and the degree to which it has just become so much part of the you know, part of the furniture in the past five, 10 years. Like I got an old Facebook post, which I made, which I, you know, appears kind of your Facebook memories where I predicted <laughs> staggeringly wrongly back in 2015 that we'd reach peak woke because I think Mark Fisher's Vampire Castle essay came out in 2013. By 2015, there was already the beginning of a kind of backlash against it, you know, both kind of on the left as well as, um, as well as, uh, you know, beyond that, obviously. And, uh, and I was wrong because it just continued to become more hegemonic. And today you can say that, you know, it's kind of ruling class ideology or at least a, a, of a large swathe of the ruling class. And, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, a, a pretty striking development over the past six years. And so yeah. insofar as, you know, the lesson from this survey is, you know, roll back to focus on, you know, jobs and economic growth and, you know, healthcare and say, hey, this is about us versus them, about workers versus the ruling class and whatever, um, that is is merely the kind of, uh, what would you say, I guess, kind of default kind of left-wing common sense of 20, mm. 30 years ago, albeit maybe then 30 years ago, maybe a little bit more focus on kind of anti-imperialism or something. But, you know, broadly, that's yeah. just the common sense. So the idea that this should any in any way be kind of controversial just shows how far uh, we've come and how much of the left has become dominated effectively by, by what is, uh, can only be described as ruling class ideology. I mean, it does you um, it does you credit, Alex, that you would you would say here is here is something that I thought previously and I've been proved wrong. Whereas Phil is kind of the opposite. It's like here's something that I thought previously and surprise, uh, surprise yet again, I've been proved proved right. And I think ultimately, if you learn from your mistakes, that's probably a better better to have a growth mindset than a, um, t- a told you so needless to say, I had the last laugh mindset, which um, that kind of partridgean mindset that maybe um, Philip uh, evinced earlier oh philip evinced earlier partridgean <laughs> mindset oh really maybe you want to explain to people your terms, yeah, i don't know what George, that means yeah. evincing okay, so, partridgeanism um I, alan partridge says that he finishes several chapters of his autobiography with needless to say i had the last laugh um and i just think oh a partridgean <laughs> mindset right oh, no, i think that i think some some listeners would have got that and they would have been just laughing there their butts off and yeah, and yeah explain and, it yeah just targeting marginal constituencies like a true wokester uh, <laughs> yeah exactly but but what i did want to say is like yeah actually no no i, I won't make that point it was too <laughs> okay was maybe, too, maybe we should just end, maybe we should just end these with uh kind of jerry springer kind of sign-offs like so i just wanted to say that we should be open to learning lessons and it's okay to say i was wrong and that we've learned <laughs> take care of yourselves and each other catch you later bye-bye Have you ever been wrong about anything, Phil? Yeah, plenty. <laughs>
Just surprisingly, not a bad Jacobin. <laughs> Why would that surprise you? Um, no, but no, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that the, like, the, the, the big question is, like, is the, is the next viable project explicitly, like, and not just like not woke, but anti woke, like really anti PMC. I, I think really there's just like a limit to that. People, I just don't like, think people fuck them. But people don't care. I mean, I think I think it has to be like a given that you're kind of anti woke, but also making anti woke your politics is just further middle class. No, but, but actually, like, what are the class interests of these people? How do you take sure, away from sure? Them? But I don't think. But I think there's they also transfer. there's also a limit to which how much that plays. I mean, if you hold that you know wokeness is just this middle class thing just for those milieus then if you're not part of the middle class then you don't have that much contact with it and so why do you care so much about it you might hate them but that's why, why is that gonna that why is that gonna get you out of bed in the morning you and do, i think because right like you hate the you might hate the wolves, but you're you also mean, like because not, you because you because you yeah. perceive that you're that your primary class enemies are not the ceos of fortune 500 companies they're the wokies and it's not about like attacking them culturally it's like what are their material interests and how do you take stuff away from them and, and retain it no i agree i agree george but i mean i suppose the you know it's hard you know kind of converting that animus into politics rather than just kind of cultural opposition and disapproval yeah. is is the question and i i think uh, i mean and even then it would only work really if you did show that and as this report shows i mean you know the the richer you are, the more, I mean, surprisingly, unsurprisingly, the richer you are, the more um, susceptible you are to work. Yeah. So, I mean, it does, you know, it does serve interests, not just those of the PMC. No, I mean, I, I'd love I mean, it if, I'd it. love it if just being anti-woke was like the solution, because that would be really easy. Like, it would be great. I'd just turn myself and just be anti-woke the whole time. And that would be my, my politics. I just don't think it is. I think it would be too, yeah, that would be like, that would be really fun. Great. Politics is easy. Be anti-woke. <laughs> Like, I don't think, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I don't know it, what it means basically. politically. Yeah. I mean, I think George is right. Like, what does it mean politically beyond say, you know, kind of um, if you're asked questions, do you support this or that? Or what do you think about this or that? Should we, I don't know. It's these horrible fucking, you know, should we teach Shakespeare in schools kind of things? Yeah. Yes or no. You know, that kind of shit is just, it's not a political like, question. If there was a political party which was just like specifically anti me, not name, not me by name, but me as a social type, anti George, I would be, I would be like, I, I think would be there'd be support. There would be support yeah. for that, that's, that's not just anti Georgism, but it's a very George Costanza ish politics, actually. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> self hatred as a political force. Yeah, and there you um, see that'll just reproduce wokeism right there. You see, it's yeah. inescapable. Yeah. That's true. That's because it's, you middle work class, for it's middle class self-loathing. Yeah, middle in, class self-loathing. You've just recreated a new form of wokery, George, because you are a member of the PMC and you cannot but express I'm, your material interests. I've never, I've never, I've never denied it. I, I just, I, I love contradiction so much that I want to get to the most <laughs> contradictory social position I possibly can. I just love it. <clears throat> All right. Cool. No, that was that was good. Thank, thanks, Phil, for um, not just completely shitting on the article immediately. Oh, wait a minute. That's exactly exactly what you did. Yeah.